Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Crucifixion was designed to be a slow, agonizing, utterly humiliating death. That was what it was all about. It wasn't kill them quickly. It was make them suffer as long as we possibly can. So that was the intention. But Jesus chooses to be crucified. So why did he do that? Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 through 32, in a message titled, The Crucifixion of Christ. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So, as we're here in the 15th chapter, as you can see, we're, we're looking at now the, the crucifixion of Jesus, and we're going to come back to this chapter one more time. We're going to look at something a little more specifically next time, but today I want to focus in really just on the crucifixion itself. And so I want to, to look at the crucifixion from the standpoint of what it was about and what, what it accomplished for us and the application and so forth. But before we do that, I want to just highlight a couple of things in the passage that we read together here, at least a portion of the passage. And so in verse 16, we're told that, and re- so remember, previously we were talking about Jesus is before Pilate. He offers the people the choice between Jesus and Barabbas. And and so, of course, they they choose Barabbas versus Jesus. So then Jesus was led away by the soldiers into the Praetorium. So the Praetorium would be the governor's residence in Jerusalem. Now, this whole scene that we read about here where they twisted a crown of thorns, they put this purple cloak on him, They struck him. They spit upon him. All of this was something that the soldiers, they they would treat prisoners like this. I mean, this was fairly normal procedure. But of course, the Jews and the Romans hated each other. And as far as the Jews were concerned, the Romans were just, you know, these oppressors. They were heathens. They uh, had no right to be there in God's land. And the Romans who had conquered the world and conquered Judea, to them, the Jews were nothing but scum, basically. And now here's a person who there's this claim that he's the king of the Jews. So they are going to go out of their way to humiliate Jesus because of that title that was given to him, the king of the Jews, of course, which he actually was. But one of the things that it says that they did to him is it says that they made a crown of thorns and they put it upon his head. Now, the thing that we need to understand is, you know, the whole Bible is all woven together. It's so amazing when you think about this phenomenon because the Bible, as some of you know, the Bible is made up of 66 books, but it's really one book. And you find this thread that is sewn all the way through on so many different issues. But think with me for just a moment about this whole idea of a crown of thorns. 
Because the first place that thorns are ever mentioned in the Bible is all the way back at the very beginning of time, and it's connected to the fall of mankind. So remember, God creates humanity, creates man, male and female, he creates them, Adam and Eve, and they're in a a relationship with God, and the world is a paradise. Everything is beautiful. There's no such thing as thorns, thistles, nothing like that exists. But when the fall takes place and man disconnects from God through that rebellion, then what happens is that impacts all of nature. And so the first place we read about thorns and thistles is in Genesis chapter 3. And it's part of the curse that comes upon the world because of this rebellion. And God says to Adam, the earth will now produce thorns and thistles. Now, fast forward to Jesus. It's no coincidence that they placed a crown of thorns on his head. Because you see, again, it's tying the whole thing together. Thorns are a sign of the fall and the curse that came as a result of that fall. Jesus is here to bear the penalty of the curse. And so when they placed, these Roman soldiers, of course, had no idea that that's what they were doing, but that's exactly what they were doing. They were identifying Jesus as the one who would bear the curse. And and of course, that's exactly what he did. And so that's one thing that I wanted you to see here. But, But secondly, I just want you to see that what's happening here as well is all a fulfillment of the prophetic scripture. And we'll look at that as we jump into just focusing on the crucifixion. But there's several references right here in Mark's account that take us back to the Old Testament and tie the two things together. Now, you know that there are four gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So each one of them We're not going to take the time today to fill in all of the blanks. Mark gives probably the most brief account of the crucifixion out of the other three. And so there there are things that Matthew will tell us that we don't have here. There there are interesting things that Luke tells us that we don't have here. And then, of course, John tells us things that we don't have here. But we're just going to stick right with the, the text as it is here in Mark. If you want to get some of those other details, then I would encourage you to go ahead on your own and read through the other accounts because there are some very interesting other details that are there. But what I want to focus on today is just this whole, this picture of Christ crucified, the crucifixion of Christ. And I want to set the stage here by reminding us that all of these events were determined before time ever began. Think about that. We're told about Jesus later in various places in the Gospels that he is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So before God ever creates the world, before he ever creates humanity, all of this has been determined. Because, of course, God knows he's going to create, and he knows the outcome of what's going to happen with his creation. He's going to create this this creature, man. And he's going to create man for a relationship with himself, but there's going to be a revolt against that. But God is going to reverse that. And he's going to reverse that by coming into the world 
and redeeming mankind. So in eternity past, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made the decision to save sinners by sending God the Son to pay the penalty for their sins and by dying in their place. That's where I want us to start. He also chose the means by which he would die. He chose death by crucifixion. Now, this is so interesting if you think about it. So this is, God determines that all of this is going to happen, that he's going to die for sinners, God the Son. But he also determines the method by which he's going to die. Now, in Israel at the time, the death penalty was usually carried out through stoning. That was the common way of executing people in Israel. It was through stoning them. The Romans had a number of ways that they could execute somebody. The most civilized way, believe it or not, was by beheading. And the reason that was the most civilized way is because it was the swiftest way for someone to die. It was, in one sense, the most painless way. It was, in a sense, a method by which there was very little suffering. Crucifixion, on the other hand, was a completely different situation. And crucifixion was reserved for Rome's greatest enemies. And, and it, was, it served as a reminder to anybody who would revolt against the nation that this would be your destiny. Now, crucifixion was designed to be a slow, agonizing, utterly humiliating death. That was what it was all about. It wasn't kill them quickly. It was make them suffer as long as we possibly can and display them before others so that anybody who might have the slightest inclination to revolt would see somebody crucified and say, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. So that was, that was the intention. But Jesus chooses to be crucified. So why did he do that? Well, we're going to get to that in a moment. But I want us to see five things concerning crucifixion. So if you take notes, you want to jot these down, we're going to look at five things concerning the death of Christ. And the first thing is that it was a predicted death. It was a predicted death. And here in the passage, we see in verse 23, it says this. It says, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink. And then it says they divided his garments, casting lots for them. And then a little further down in verse 27, it says, with him they also crucified two criminals, one on his right hand, the other on his left. Now, this was predicted. It was predicted in the 22nd Psalm. If you read the 22nd Psalm, you're going to see there in the 22nd Psalm that the psalmist, who's David, he's going to say they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So David speaks prophetically 1,000 years before the event, and he describes what's happening at the foot of the cross. But then it also says in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And so the gospel writer points out that Jesus was crucified between these two criminals. So you see, this was a predicted death. It was something that God foretold in advance that would take place. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it was a voluntary death. The, the death of Jesus was not something that was forced on him. 
You know, some people today have the strange idea that even though Christians for 2,000 years have believed that, that Jesus died to bear the punishment for our sin, some Christians today think, oh, that isn't true. That, that's a misreading of the Bible. And they say, because if that was the case, God would be like a cosmic child abuser, forcing his child, his son Jesus, to, to be punished for sin. But we have to understand that Jesus died voluntarily. It, it wasn't forced on him. He wasn't made to do this against his will. Jesus even said himself, he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. And then he said, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. So anyone who thinks that they're doing God some service by trying to get him off the hook of being a cosmic child abuser, don't even bother because he's not one in the first place. This was agreed between the father and the son. It's like, I love my wife. She's so good with her imagination. She comes up with some really great pictures and things like that. But she had this picture of, you know, like, um, like a great king and the subjects of the kingdom have been taken captive and the king's son is going to go on the mission on behalf of his father to deliver them from that captivity. Well, that's the picture. That, that's, that's the right picture. Jesus comes voluntarily to do this. This is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are the one God working in unison to bring about our redemption. It was a voluntary death. Thirdly, it was a substitutionary death. And substitutionary means that he died in our place. In other words, we should have died. We should have died for the offenses that we had committed against God. But Jesus dies as our substitute. He dies in our place. Again, Isaiah 53 tells us that. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So his death was substitutionary. And we believe that. And we talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's what we're talking about. Jesus said in John 6, 51, he said, I give my flesh for the life of the world. That's what he's doing. He's paying the penalty with his flesh for the offenses that we have committed. Fourthly, it is a reconciling death. Through the death of Jesus, mankind is reconciled to God. To be reconciled means to come back together. Two parties that have been separated are now brought back together. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul the Apostle says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And then in Colossians chapter 1, he says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. So it's a reconciling death. That's what happened. Through the death of Jesus, God brings humanity back into a relationship with him. And the final, the fifth and the final thing here is that it was a universal death. It was a universal death, meaning that the death of Jesus was for everybody. 
There wasn't a single person that was excluded from this. So we read about this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It says, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It's a universal death. Now, not all Christians believe that. Some Christians believe that Christ only died for the elect. He died for some people, but not for all people. I, I think the Bible teaches that he, his death was universal. There's no one that was excluded from that sacrifice that Christ made. So now let's look at each one of those things again, but let's see how they apply to us. What, what does this mean? So in that the death of Christ was a predicted death, what does that mean? Well, it means that we could know that this was according to God's plan. This wasn't something that just happened. Sometimes I will talk to people. I've heard people say things like this. They don't understand that Jesus came in fulfillment of God's promises. Some people think that Jesus just kind of showed up in history, just like you showed up in history, or I showed up in history, or George Washington showed up in history, or you know, whoever else, and then people just decided, wow, this must be the Son of God. Well, that's not how it happened. Jesus came into the world in fulfillment of promises that were made centuries earlier. Predictions. We call them prophecies. And he comes to fulfill that plan of God all the way back to the very beginning that we talked about a moment ago, it was at the very beginning when sin entered into the world that God said, I'm going to send a, a redeemer. And he spoke that to the serpent who deceived the woman. And he said, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. So all the way back then, there was this promise given. And then it unfolded as time went on. So we know that the death of Christ was according to God's predetermined plan. When we think of the death of Christ as being voluntary, that demonstrates his love for us. He willingly laid down his life. Jesus didn't have to do this. He could have simply just said, no, this is not going to happen. God could have decided, having created mankind and, and humanity revolting against him, God could have just simply said, okay, we're finished. It was a bad experiment, and uh, we'll just end it right here. But he didn't do that. He came, and as we pointed out, he came voluntarily, but, it, but it's the voluntary aspect that shows us he did it out of love because he didn't have to do it, but he volunteered to do it. And Jesus himself would say at one point to his disciples, he would say, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that's exactly what he did. He laid down his life voluntarily. Um, his substitutionary atonement, it pays the penalty for our offenses against God. Now, this is super unpopular today, the idea that we've offended God, but whether it's unpopular or not doesn't really matter. It's true. Mankind has offended God. We have lived in revolt against his uh, rule over our lives, and that that has brought us to a place of guilt before God, and that guilt must be punished. So there's a penalty for that. Just like in 
our experience in life, you know, if you decide to go out and commit a bunch of crimes, there's going to be a consequence to that. You're going to have to pay the penalty for those crimes, depending on what the crimes are. You're going to end up in jail, or you might end up in prison, or you could even end up with the death penalty. That's something we all know is a reality in this world. Well, it transfers beyond this world. It's not just here. And the whole concept of justice and righteousness and all of that is connected back to the God who gave his commandments. And so it was for those offenses against God that Jesus died and thus paid the price, the penalty. And fourthly, his reconciling death, it restores the fellowship we were created to enjoy. Human beings were created to live in a relationship with God. And everybody knows this experientially. Not not everybody understands what it is. But everybody knows that there's just something about life that seems incomplete. Or there's something about life that just seems like, you know, there's something that always goes wrong. There's, you know, you just think like it's, it's the perfect situation and then everything sort of goes south. And this happens over and over and over again. It happens to civilizations. It happens to communities. It happens to families. It happens to people. It's just the way it is. There's always something that wrecks it. There's the spoiler. There's like a built-in spoiler to everything. There's a reason for that. It's because of our disconnect from God. We were created to live in a relationship with God. Now, the reconciling death of Jesus restores that. So when that's restored we suddenly discover like, oh my goodness, life is about something completely different than I thought it was. It's about knowing God. It's about having a relationship with him. And that spoiling agent that is there in life is one day going to be completely removed. That's, it's sin is what it is. But that will be completely removed But the sin that separates human beings from God, that's been dealt with, and so the reconciliation has taken place. And then finally, with the universal death of Christ, it just reminds us that salvation is possible for everyone. As we read there in that Hebrew passage, that he tasted death for everyone. There's not a single person that's ever lived that is not a candidate to have eternal life. Remember John 3.16, that famous passage, for God so loved the world. Who's the world? Everybody. It's the, the entirety of the population. And so Jesus made salvation possible for everyone. And so this is, is the meaning of Christ's death on the cross. But we could also say that Christ's death was an agonizing and a shameful death. And I want to talk about that for a moment. It was an agonizing and a shameful death. I already described how the Romans adopted crucifixion. The Assyrians invented it uh, centuries before, but the Romans, when they came along, they said, that's a great tool. 
September, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled A London Sparrow, the inspiring and true story of Gladys Allward by Phyllis Thompson. The story of Gladys Allward is one that inspires. God used Gladys Allward to reach the lost in China during a period of peril and war. The story is one that is transparent about her weaknesses and mistakes, but it's also a story of God's strength made perfect through weaknesses, God's promised provision, and a life surrendered to God. If you have a longing for God to use your life, but have been discouraged by setbacks or doubts that God can use you, you need to get this book. You'll be inspired by what God can do through a life that is willing to follow Him. The book A London Sparrow, The Inspiring and True Story of Gladys Allward by Phyllis Thompson is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.